Are you living by the flesh or are you living by the promise? Because it's one or the other. Are you living by the flesh or are you living by the promise? Another way of looking at this is, are you relying fully on salvation by God's grace? Is that your hope? Is that your joy? Is that what you are living for and how you are living today? All because of God's grace. Is that what fuels you to go in obedience to the Father? Or is it salvation by God's grace plus a little bit of our help. I mean, we are uh, famous for this, right? I mean, we often like to interject our opinions and our thoughts on how we can enhance and improve something. Do you mind me just kind of interjecting my opinion here and, and getting into your business? And then we jump right into it and we begin to tell of our experience of how we can make things better, more improved. And we do this with God as well. We take the good gospel and we go, wow, I can be saved through Jesus Christ alone. But I think I need to add a little bit more to this because it just seems too simple. But the work has already been done. It's a finished work. Jesus has done this work. So either you are trusting in salvation by God's grace or salvation by God's grace plus a little bit of our help. And so that brought us to our main text today, Galatians 4, 21 through 31, which we will get back to in a moment. But I want to look at Luke 9, 23 for a minute. When Jesus is gathered with his disciples, he looks to them and he says to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It was important that Jesus gave uh, this command, that he was telling them that you must die to yourself and pick up this cross of sacrifice daily because every day you are going to want to add to this gospel. You are going to want to add to my work. Jesus knew this in advance, so he forewarned and he gave this command to his disciples, die to yourself, because the work that they were going to be a part of was to turn the world upside down down. Now, we live in a world today where right is wrong and wrong is right. And, and, and if you look throughout, that is what culture thrives on. They, they want to change everything that the gospel says and turn it on its axis and say, no, that can't be the truth. You can be whomever you want to be. It doesn't matter what God says. We can create our own path. And even when it comes to just say something simple of a child being in school and working hard to get straight A's, that kid oftentimes will have pressure on him from his peers because he's working too hard. Hey, temper yourself, pull back. Let us, let, don't, don't, don't make straight A's, you know, you're making it harder on the rest of us. I saw kids growing up that were not the most popular kids. And in fact, let me, let me just tell you this story. This, this sums it up. One night, um, we had our senior awards night, and uh, I was invited. And I didn't know why I was invited, okay? Because I didn't get invited to those type of award nights, all right? I just didn't. But I was invited this night, and, and, I, and I got most improved student. That's what happened, all right? Man, I, I got it my senior year, man. It was the two PEs and the weightlifting that got it, all right? And so, um, but as I am at this uh, awards banquet, there's a kid 
I won't name his name. I don't, I don't think he would listen in, but I just won't name his name. But anyway, he was the smartest kid in, in our senior class. And he won award after award after award after award after award. And I looked to my dad and I was like, man, he's like the main feature tonight, isn't he? And on our way home, he said, son, and my dad was so good at doing this. Like on the way home, that's where the, the most thought-provoking conversations took place. And he said, son, a lot of you have the spotlight. But that kid right there has worked hard every day and he has made the best grades. He's been picked on. He's been made fun on, made fun of by his friends. He's been pushed to the side. He's not gonna get the spotlight, but tonight, tonight was his spotlight and you should be proud of him. And you know what, that, that changed because here's what I was thinking, man. I, had, I was thinking, you know what, why push yourself that hard? You know, pull back on the reins a little bit. And that's kind of how we are when it comes to pursuing holiness. People are like, you know what, don't, don't, don't push so hard. I mean, pull back on the reins just a little bit. After all, I mean, we're all still worldly. But what we see here is that the disciples were going to be turning the world upside down. And they were going to be looking to Jesus and calling people to look to Christ. And they were going to be persecuted for this. They were going to endure many trials. But it's the message of Jesus which turns everything upside down. And this is what happened in Acts 17, 6 and 7. Paul was among this group. They couldn't find Paul. So they go after this guy named Jason. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now the ones who are making this accusation, the ones who are upset that these men have come to turn the world upside down are the Jews. They were waiting a Messiah. And the Messiah had come, his name is Jesus and when these disciples of his go forth and begin to preach the word and it turns the world upside down, they want to turn them in. They want them killed, destroyed, wiped off the map. Why? Because they're acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're acting against man's rules, man's law, man's governing. And they're preaching about this man, Jesus. They want another king. Jesus. And that's exactly what they were waiting for. But the problem was they didn't want Jesus to be their king. If you look throughout Jewish history, they wanted a king from the very beginning of their gathering together. But they never wanted God to rule over them. And they didn't want God's son to rule over them either. And we don't have to look any further than when Jesus came and lived on this earth and they nailed him to a cross. Because they didn't want a king that says, die to yourself and entrust in me. And that's the problem with man. He doesn't want Jesus. In his own condition, no matter how religious he may seem on the outside, he doesn't want Jesus. His heart is not conditioned for the Savior. It has to be turned upside down. It has to be made new. That stony heart has to be made a heart of flesh. And so they killed him. But Jesus lives on. He lives on through his disciples. And here they are, preaching the gospel. And the gospel turns the world upside down, reversing the world's values. 
Here's how it's done. It strips man of all his power and authority and calls him to submit his whole being unto Christ. How we love power and authority, or let's just call it control. And really what takes place when we come to the gospel is that we die to this control and we trust fully in one who would have control over us, and that's Jesus. So, The question that Paul asks here in Galatians is this, do you understand the law? Do you understand the law? Look back with me in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So now the Galatians are moving from grace and they're moving to a law-based living. I just want to remind you really quick, they're observing the days and the seasons and the months and, and the ceremonies of Jewish law of Old Testament principles that were all foreshadowing to Christ. Christ has fulfilled these things. He is the gift within the box and they're worshiping the box. They are missing the gift who is Jesus. And the Jews taught that if you were, you were not really a children or a child of Abraham, unless one, you were of Jewish descent or two, unless you obey all the laws of Moses. If you did these things, you could be included as children of Abraham. So their boast was, hey, Galatians, we are children of Abraham. And if you're calling yourselves Christians, you've got to be a child of Abraham because that's where the promise is in Abraham. But we know that it was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So what Paul is saying is that the law does not bring freedom, but only acts as a mirror to show man that he is enslaved to his sin. And what the law says is that you're a sinner and that you must be condemned. That's all of us. That's all of us in this room. That's all who have ever walked on this earth. And there's only one who could look into the law and not be found to be a sinner. And that was Jesus. And so the Jews boasted in their lineage. We are the true children of Abraham. So Paul directly addresses this statement with an allegory. So he goes back to Genesis And he goes back to Abraham. He says, okay, if they're saying that they're children of Abraham, then let's let's really look at what it means to be a child of Abraham. Now, maybe when Rob was reading this passage, you got really confused. You're looking at this passage going, what is going on here? Like, this doesn't make sense. And I hope as you leave here, you'll have a better understanding of it. So let's look at it. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according or through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So Paul addressed it this way. He says, there are two ways of being related to Abraham, a right way and a wrong way. So the right way is to look at it in spiritual terms. The wrong way is to look at it in the physical terms. So let's look at it more. When God came to Abram, he said, you are gonna be a father of many nations. But that was a problem because Abram didn't have any children. And so he said, my servant, is he going to be the one to take on my name? And God says, no, I will provide you with a child. 
And I don't know how much conversation took place between Abraham and, and Sarah and, and the time before they were able to bear a child. But Sarah comes to him with this crafty plan. She says, okay, I've been barren for 90 years. And have in mind, that was old back then. And it's interesting because if you look a few chapters before that, I mean, we're, we're, we're camping out here in Genesis 16, 17, 18, right around that area. But if you go back to Genesis 6, if you go back in that time frame, when God is speaking to Noah, he says, I will cut short the life of, of man to 120 years. So people were living well over 900 years of age. I mean, can you imagine having a birthday for your 533rd birthday? Do you have that many candles on a cake? I don't know. But I mean, they, that was just like middle age. That was middle age. But my, how things have changed quickly after the flood. The conditions of earth are different. Man is not living as long. And there was a reason for that because man is very crafty in his sin. And the longer he lives here on earth, the more crafty he becomes, the more destructive he becomes. And so through God's grace, he begins to cut back the years of life to 120. And so now they're at age 90 and Abraham is 100 and they are feeling old and they're going, how are we going to have a child? I mean, we have really missed our days to have children. And so for them to be confused and perplexed about this, it makes sense to us. They were going to have to have full faith that God would provide this. I mean, God couldn't make it any clearer that this is going to be my provision, not man's provision. So when Sarah hears this, she goes, ah, we, we need help. <laughs> so let me look around and see what I can find. And she looks to her servant who is from Egypt and her name's Hagar. And she says, ah, I guess you'll do. And she gives her to her husband, Abraham. They get married and they have a child together. And she uh, brings forth a child named Ishmael. But as soon as she finds out that she's pregnant, she looks to Sarah with this condescending look like, ha, I got you. I won one over on you. And this was Sarah's plan. And already it's getting messy. It's getting really confusing. And yet she has this attitude. Why? Because it's in the flesh. I mean, she's not the one who brought forth a child. Yeah, they had to act together, but it was still God who's in control of all things. But yet this is man enacting on his plan. And you see the pride building in everyone, in Hagar towards Sarah. And then Sarah has this pride as she gets angry and starts to abuse Hagar. And then comes Ishmael. And as Ishmael is into the scene, Sarah goes before Abraham and she says, I don't like this. But it was her plan. She says, I don't like this. I don't want them around. But now this is Abraham's son. And Abraham's thinking, this is him. This is him to come. But God then comes back to Abraham and says, no, I'm going to give you a son. And it's going to be through Sarah. Sarah hears this and she laughs. And then she gets called out on it by an angel of the Lord. And, he, and she says, no, I didn't laugh. They said, no, no, you laughed. We heard you. You laughed. Why did she laugh? Because she still thought it was impossible. Her plans made a mess of things. God is going to bring forth the promise through her to make it very clear that it's not your plan, Sarah. It's not Abraham's plan. It's not man's plan. It's my plan. It's always been about my plan. And that's the background here. 
And so Isaac comes forth, and when Isaac comes forth, then Ishmael starts picking on Isaac. And Sarah's like, oh no, uh-uh, we're not having that. And Abraham sends Ishmael and Hagar away. And I want to let you know that when we look at this story that happened 4,000 years ago, that is still a mess today. This created such a conflict throughout the world. And this would create a conflict within this family, but also among the Jews. And so Sarah represents an old and barren woman needing a supernatural act of God. Whereas Hagar was young and fertile, not really relying on God, but just going through the motions. And so with Hagar, Abraham was practicing faith. I mean, he was somehow stepping out on faith, but it was not faith that was pleasing to God because it was faith in himself, not faith in God. And this is what Paul is pointing out. He's saying these Jews, they're coming from Hagar. These who are speaking of being in Abraham and the law, that's, that's the way of Hagar. Creates a mess. As a side note, Notice when you read back on this account with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, there's an absence of prayer in Sarah's life. An absence of prayer. And now see her plans unfold. And that's how we step out many times, don't we? Instead of praying about it, we just step out and do something and we make a mess of things. And then it leads us to go into prayer of repentance instead of asking God to work mightily in trusting in God's plan. But there's no calling upon God in Sarah's life. So the wrong way to be a descendant of Abraham is to boast in the flesh, which these men were doing. The right way is to trust fully in the promise, that is, in Jesus. So that's the breakdown, that's the background that Paul is addressing here. And so as we look to supporting verses in uh, scripture, John 1, 12 and 13 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus made it very clear when he came, he said, it's not your heritage. It's not your race. It's not your work ethic that makes you a child of God. No, but it is all of God. You didn't receive him, believe in his name. You, didn't, you weren't given the right to become a child of God because of where you were born or what your bloodline was or what type of work you did. Romans 9, 16 also supports this when it looks at who God's gonna give mercy to. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Why do we see these verses in, in the grand narrative of the gospel? It's because God wants to make it clear. Man cannot save himself and man cannot save anyone else. God does the saving always. Man makes a mess of things. And here we have this mess in Galatia. As Paul comes and he's reminding them of this and he's saying, okay, so here's the deal. They're saying they're children of Abraham. Well, you are children of Abraham. It's not enough to claim that Abraham is your father, but according to this text, who is your mother? Who is your mother? And so all of a sudden, 
if they're reading this letter out loud in Galatia and some of the Judaizers are in attendance, I mean, their blood is boiling at this point. They're mad. Who are you to say that we're not true children of Abraham? We have the bloodline. And he's saying, ah, it's not about Abraham, really. It's, it's, it's whose mother? Whose mother? Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So this is Isaiah 54 verse one that Paul finds appropriate just to interject right here. The history behind this verse is originally, this was a prophetic word for the Jewish exiles in Babylon around 1200 years after Abraham's time and 600 years before Paul's. The remaining Israelites thought that their national life was over, that they would not be a nation anymore, that they would never be able to return home or have their own country again. They seemed like failures, weak and helpless, and that their exile was a punishment, while other nations seemed to be strong and able, rising up all around them. But God says to them through Isaiah, now that you are helpless, you will see that it is the weak in whose lives my grace works. I will make you numerous and great. And now we fast forward to the Galatians who are a representation of the barren woman coming from Sarah who was weak and old and frail and could never produce a child on her own. But through God's grace, she delivered one. As Paul is referring to it here. Here's a question. What if only the fertile can have children? Then it would be all about man's efforts, all about man's strength, all about man's ability, his status, and his record. And the last time I checked, that's how the world functions. But with the gospel, it turns it upside down. It changes everything. Those who think that they are naturally religious and good on their own are the farthest from freedom. Can I say that again in a land of religious people all around us? Those who think that they are naturally religious and good on their own are the farthest from freedom. And so Paul is asking the question here, do you understand the law? The right response is this, I can't do it. Meaning I can't pursue holiness. I can't be righteous and holy before God. I can't do it, but he can, Jesus can. That's the right response. I can't do it, Jesus can. The wrong response is he can do it. Jesus can do it, but so can I, but so can I. It's Jesus, salvation, plus the hard work that I'm going to put into this to keep pleasing God so that he'll bless my life and give me more and I have to keep it up or else he's not going to bless me. He's not going to love me as much. He's not going to provide for me. And before you think, I don't think that way, think really hard about that because this passage has caused me to reflect and look at my life and I go, man, I still function that way. The wrong response but the right response is, I can't do it, Jesus can. So I look to Jesus in all things. But here's what happens with that. The flesh will always attack the promise. The flesh says, he can do it, and so can I. The promise says, I can't do it, but he can. 
and the flesh will always attack the promise. Read with me in verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is Paul writing this inspired by the Holy Spirit. What do we see that when Ishmael began to taunt Isaac, he and his mother were cast out. The slave woman in this story was cast out. Yeah, this was practical. It meant something to Hagar. It meant something to Ishmael, to Abraham, to Sarah, to Isaac in the time that it took place. But it also means something for the rest of history. He said, those who are in the flesh will taunt those who are in the spirit, those who are of the promise. And what he's telling the Galatians is you should expect this because Ishmael's will persecute Isaac's. Ishmael's will persecute Isaac's again and again and again. This is what John Stott says. The persecution of the true church is not always by the world who are strangers, but by our half brothers, religious people, the nominal church. The greatest enemies of evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. Do you agree with that statement? That the greatest persecution that we face ongoing is within the church. It's within this structure. It's Ishmael's and Isaac's mixed together. It's those who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they don't boast in Jesus. They boast in their own works. And they sit in church services week in and week out. They sit in small group Bible studies week in and week out. They even memorize scripture. And yet there is this attack on those who rely fully on the promise of the spirit of God at work in them. That's what we're seeing here. We're not seeing people who don't recognize Jesus We're not seeing people who don't love God. Their confession is that they love God. And here they're attacking the Galatians because all they're doing is relying on Jesus and nothing else. And that's beginning to change through their influence. And Paul steps in and he says this basically, that identity is more important than behavior. Identity is more important than behavior. He reminds them that you are adopted children of God and it's about promise, not performance. Now we're quick to say, hold on now. We can't just say that we accept the gospel and do nothing about it. And that's not what Paul's teaching here. I mean, he's gonna tell them live by the spirit so you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. What he is addressing here is that it's not about your performance that makes you a better Christian. It's all about the promise. And so can I just give a little application here at the end? Um, There's no such thing as a better Christian. Do you hear that? There's no such thing as a better Christian. And that may get your wheels turning. You may be thinking about that. 
But here's where I'm going with this and, and based on this passage. We may think that we're better Christians because we attend church more than others. We may think that we're better Christians because we know how to share the gospel better than others. We may think that we're better Christians because we know more of the Bible than other people do. And you know what we do with that? We walk around with a little bit of pride, a little bit of arrogance mixed in there. And when people call us out, they go, man, you really know the Bible. And you know what happens inside? We fight it. We fight it. We go, no, don't boast in this. But there's this other side that says, boast in this, man, because you do. You know scripture, man. You are rocking it right now. And you like that people notice that in you. And, and, and we're not talking about edification here, encouraging one another, striving. No, this is boasting you up in the midst of the church. And it's making you seem more religious and a better Christian than the other people around you. But here's how we then react when other people aren't where we are. We, with this attitude, we tend to look down on them. We get disappointed with them. We get frustrated with them. Well, go read your Bible. Obviously, you haven't been reading your Bible. Obviously, you haven't been praying. Have you been praying 30 minutes a day? Have you been reading an hour a day? Have you been watching Charles Stanley on TV? Come on. That's how we respond. Not with grace, but with performance. And so we look down on one another and then we treat one another as if we're, there are lesser Christians out there. And then there are better Christians. And we put this divide and we say things like, oh, they're not like us. They're not as faithful as us. Now we know that naturally we do this as local churches, which is sick and disgusting in itself, that we would think that we're a better local church than another local church based on whatever God may be doing by his grace through us. But we do this as individuals. We do this in our families. We do this between husbands and wives. We do this between dads and sons and mothers and daughters. We do it in this way. How could you disappoint me like this? How could you fail me? When I was your age, I didn't do those things. There it is. You get it? All of a sudden, it's about performance and we get away from the grace. But here's, here's the downfall to those who function like this. Let me tell you the downfall. Is that when you live in such a way, when you fail, either you don't, think that you fail, you've gotten to a very dangerous position where you don't think you really sin anymore and that your sin stinks. Or when you do fail, you fall hard. You fall hard. You're so disappointed in yourself, you can't even look up to God to repent because you failed. And you're thinking, how could I have failed? How could I have sinned again? How could, I was, I was doing good, man. Three months, man, three months. I was going, I was obedient. Now, I fail. How can I fall after three months of obedience, perfect obedience in this area? God, I know you wouldn't even want to look at me right now. You're not even pleased with me right now. I'm down on the scales here, but I'll get back up. I'll get back to you, God. I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more. I think you know what I'm talking about. This is the performance. And this is what Paul came to address. He says, this is not grace. No, because if you do succeed or you fool yourself into thinking that you succeed at this type of performance, you will not be giving God glory, but you will be basking in your own glory. And I pray 
that that doesn't happen in my life. I pray it doesn't happen in your life. And so where do you go from here? If this is the case, where do you go? Because where we can tend to think this is walk out of here and go, good, man, we don't need obedience. We just, grace, I messed up. Oh, grace, grace, grace. Paul addressed that too. He says, no, it doesn't mean that you go sin more. Absolutely not. But when you do mess up, you recognize that you've sinned before God. And yet, yeah, you're still a sinner and you still struggle. And when others are struggling alongside you, you don't look to them and go, oh, how could you? How could you struggle? No, you go, I get it. I get that you struggle. When you read the word, instead of throwing it in somebody's face, share it with them. Share how it's impacting your own life. When you read the word, but you're always thinking about how you can tell other people how it can fix their lives, there's the problem. Every time we open up the word of God, it ought to be, Lord, teach me today, penetrate my own heart before I start thinking about the hearts of other people. That's what Paul's getting at. I've lived a life of legalism. I despise the life of legalism. May we not be a place where when people walk in, they feel lesser Christian because they don't know as much. And when somebody gets excited because of the grace of God, and yet you go, hey, calm down a little bit, bud. It'll pass, don't worry. Give it a few years, you won't be as excited. No, let it challenge you. Be excited for them. Don't be an Ishmael. Attacking the Isaacs. And look, you know how freeing this is? Let me tell you how this is freeing. You quit comparing yourself to other people. Do you know how freeing that is? I I compare myself to people all my life. And what the gospel does, it begins to strip that away. And you begin to look to Jesus in every area. And it doesn't happen all at once. And things start coming back into play. But when you compare yourself to others and you say, I do better than they do. Or I'm not as good as they are. You're enslaving yourself to performance. Be freed from it. And the good news is you can be. When you look to Jesus and instead of comparing yourself to others, you say, hey, let's go together and live for the glory of God. Let's be jealous for his name's sake, not for our own name, because ultimately that's what the Judaizers wanted. They wanted the attention. Martin Luther said this, it is is the supreme art of the devil that he can make the law out of the gospel. And we take the gospel and we say, oh, that's good, but what can I add to it? Nothing. What can I do more to enhance it? Nothing. Ray Ortland says, the only people who trot out their virtues are guilty people who can't face it. They need to prove that they are better. So they are always looking for somebody to be superior to. Wow. That is truth. who trot out their virtues are guilty people who can't face it. So what do you do? You look to a weaker opponent. It's easy to beat up on the weaker opponents. I hope that you don't find joy there. I hope that you don't find comfort there. 
And man, I hope if you're struggling with this, that you would find freedom in the promise. And the promise is this, that Jesus has done it all. And that every day you can rest in this. And this is the reminder that Paul gives to the Galatians. Today, are you about performance or promise? Are you trusting fully in knowing that your salvation is nothing that you ever contributed to, but it's all by the grace of God? All by the grace of God. Are you comparing yourself to other people? If so, repent of it. Repent of it today and be free from that because you're not winning over in that. And you're definitely not impressing God with that. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, I hope you've been encouraged by what you've heard. Because you may say, I can't, if, if I follow Jesus, there's so much that I don't know. There's so much I gotta catch up on. You'll never do it by yourself. You'll never do it by yourself. Die to yourself today, meaning quit living in your own power and strength and trust in the power and strength of Jesus. Do you trust that he died for you on the cross? Are you willing to follow him? Repent and trust in Jesus today. I'm gonna be standing right here in just a moment. Uh, Will's gonna be standing over here to my right. Man, we'd love to talk with you. Mr. Charlie's gonna be standing in that back door. We kind of got this room covered here. If you wanna come talk to us about Jesus or you wanna check off there, I wanna know more about following Christ, please do that. Please do that. We would love to talk with you more about following Jesus. To the church, let us hold true to the promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together. And now as we continue to sing, may we sing with great joy. With great joy, knowing that this is not something that we've accomplished on our own, but we are relying fully on you through your work, through your son, Jesus. Everything is put in its right order. Nothing gets out of order. Nothing confuses you, bewilders you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray today that your sovereign grace, will you continue to work and save people? May there be true repentance and relying all on the work of Jesus. And may that lead us to go and enjoy living for you. May your word be ever sweet to us this week as we read it and it penetrates our hearts and reveals the sin in our hearts so that, God, we can be freed of it and have such a sweet relationship with Jesus this week. As we pray, may we pray as we're talking to a friend face to face, all of our guilt that we have that keeps us from praying, Lord, may we just repent of it, Lord, and trust that Jesus died for that. Lord, bless our going out this week. If we feel hypocritical that who are we to share the gospel, we we just trust fully in what Jesus did. That's why we share the gospel. May we love each other. May we not compare ourselves one to another, but may we look to Jesus every day and may that lead us to love each other and encourage one another, root for one another, challenge one another in the gospel. We live by this promise in Jesus' name. Amen.